things theology, all things theology. We chop it up properly without an apology. Gotta give doxology to God hollow because this is how we do it at all things theology. Yo, grace and peace, guys. Welcome to another episode of All Things Theology, where I'm your host, K-Dub. And today, we're going to be doing a video review. Uh, I would encourage you to go and watch my last video pertaining to this subject, uh, where I critiqued uh, Pastor Howard John Wesley's, Dr. Pastor Howard John Wesley's um, theology, uh, maybe ideology, and how he approaches the Bible. Um, this, this particular episode, I'll be doing the same thing, but we're going to be getting more into church history. So buckle up, get ready, because I think there were some things that were said that I think most people do not know about and aren't ready to uh, give an answer for. And so I think it's I take church here, church history very seriously. I've I've read um, probably more than your average person, Christian. Um, I'm no expert, but. Nevertheless, I do believe I have a sufficient grounds for uh, addressing errors that were made. And so this primarily going to be dealing with church history. Um, I have a, uh, uh, you know, history. I was going to say long history, but I have a history of addressing uh, Dr. Howard Jones Wesley um, in further videos. If you uh, want to check those out, I have a playlist. You can check that out, see other videos I've done. But this one particularly, I just want to give a um uh, defense for church history uh l let me say this i had a friend who uh <laughs> i'd be missed not to say this after the conversation i make these critique videos of howard john wesley's because i do care for the people that are in his congregation though i've never met them though we've never had a conversation i do care for people that are in false doctrine and i i, I believe they uh you know pastor john howard howard john wesley is leading his people down a dangerous road especially with the sloppy way of handling church history as you're going to see here in a second just some things that are just i i just believe you know are just unnecessary to do you know and so my my main motivation for making these videos is love and concern and so i hope many people even howard john wesley doesn't see me as just a guy I just want to be a heresy hunter or just a guy that just you know wants to be divisive just for divisiveness sake. That's that's not my aim. That's not my motivation. So I just want to throw that out there in the beginning, just in case I'm accused of that. I I mean I'm saying myself after examining my own heart that is my motivation. And so let's get into this video. I'm sure you guys are uh, sick of me talking, but before we one more thing, <laughs> if you haven't, make sure to like this video right now. Subscribe to the channel if you're not. And if you have any questions, as always, leave a leave your question in the comment section. Now let's get it. I say all that to suggest that if we're going to understand some of the modern doctrinal divisions within Christianity, we may need to understand a little bit about how Christianity began. I agree. And how some of these divisions have grown and evolved over time. And you may be surprised to find out that some of the things we're debating today have been debated within Christianity since the time Jesus ascended back into heaven. That's very true. Um, a, a lot of a lot of people are ignorant about the things they're they're debating about the historical development of that. Um, and, and I don't mean the historical development in the sense of like the church has been like kind of progressively until they got. It. I mean like what caused the debate, uh, what centered around the debate, the controversy, how it started, and what was the conclusion on those things. Um, 
because Howard John Wesley kind of makes it seem like the church was just kind of like clueless um, and just kind of scrambling. And then, hey, you know what? We got it right now. We're kind of dictating what truth is. I'm, I'm going to address some of those things later, but I just want to throw that out there now. But I, I, I agree with what he's saying. A lot of stuff we're debating, debating has has long been, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, sought out from Scripture, from 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 the giants we stand on, you know, and, and many people are not aware that they're standing on great men. And when I mean that in a, um, you know, sense of they stood for truth. And so I, I, I totally agree. So let's begin a little walk down memory lane. I want to begin by taking you to the book of the acts of the apostles. A few fundamentals about acts. Let me say, uh, sorry to keep interrupting so quickly, but I actually think he's starting at the right place. Church history begins after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would argue. And so I, I think he's absolutely right by starting in the book of Acts. Uh, oftentimes people start like way down the road, <laughs> but no, I, I think he's absolutely right. And I do appreciate that. So, hey, when he gets it right, I'm, I'll commend him. I'll, I'll agree with him. And so it's not all going to be critique. Sometimes I'm like, yeah. And, and I did that in the last video, too, I believe. Um, hey, yeah, he, he got it right right here. I, I, right now, it sounds like I'm actually agreeing more with him than disagreeing, but it'll come. Just wait. Acts, that fifth book of the New Testament, is written by the same author of the Gospel of Luke. And there are many scholars who believe that you need to read them both together as part one and two, that after you read through the Gospel of Luke, you then need to read Acts right after it. I, I agree. And so there's some scholars <laughs> who say John should not divide Luke and Acts because Luke and Acts are meant to be read as one book. In Luke, we follow the life of Jesus. In Acts of the Apostles, we follow the life of the growth of the church after Jesus has been crucified and ascends into heaven. Yeah. That in the book of Acts, we begin with Christ, who then ascends into heaven. The day of Pentecost comes, and many scholars believe that is where you can really begin to date the birth of the Christian church. Like I said in my last video, man, he'll, Dr. Howard John Wesley will say things where you're like, wow, good. You know, it'll be very good. And then, you know, for like five, 10 minutes, you'll be like, wow, this is actually very good. And then out of nowhere, <laughs> like I said, depending on your perspective, left or right turn, <laughs> you know. And so uh, it's it's often that like when he's explaining stuff, I, I'll, I'll agree a lot. But sometimes it's the conclusions he draws from that where I'm like, yeah, no, that's that's actually not accurate. Don't worry, the, the, dis, the disagreement will come from come uh, shortly. So far, it's been all agreement, but here we go. The apostles, the disciples of Jesus, are now charged with carrying on the ministry and the life of Jesus in the world and what we now identify as the church, the body of Christ, as it became assembled other than outside of the death of Jesus Christ. So when you read through Acts, you're going to read a chronicling of the history of early Christianity and the first church. And by church, I don't mean building. By church, I don't mean that they built some tabernacle in Jerusalem. I'm talking about this collective movement of Christianity as it begins to spread across the world. That's what you read in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, what begins to happen is that these early Christians... And so people are like... 
people may be asking why I didn't like get right to the point of the argument. Well, I, I want him to build his argument, build his case, and not just chop up like I do chop the video up, but never to take him out of context. And so I think this is important to keep him in context. And so I, I, I want to be a man of integrity. And so even if it doesn't get the excitement right off the bat, I, well, hey, sometimes you have to wait and listen. <laughs> so I, I think it's important to keep him in context here and, and develop his argumentation. And so I kept this in here because it is important to stuff he says later. And so there you go. ...are persecuted. The Jews and the Romans look at them as some novel new religion and they begin to persecute them. As a matter of fact, you remember that's the story of Saul who becomes Paul. Saul was a persecutor of the church. And as these early Christians are persecuted, this movement that began in Jerusalem through persecution, the Christians begin to move to other areas. And as they leave out of Jerusalem, guess what? They take the gospel of Jesus with them. So the persecution, which was really meant to kill Christianity, is actually responsible for its growth. Because Yeah, I, I can't believe I think it might have been Tertullian, Tertullian who, who said something essential to that. The uh, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, I think I got that quote right. But essentially saying like, yeah, uh, persecution actually builds the church. Ironically enough, where it's, it's it's very strange. The world is killing Christians, uh, trying to stop and limit, but it actually builds. And usually, in times of great persecution, you actually see a great explosion of Christianity. Oddly enough, and so um, I think that could be a uh, a hope for for Christians who may feel something like that is happening in America. Because I mean, um, people who are may in other countries, they definitely know about this. The persecution. The early Christians who were Jews would have stayed in Jerusalem. But because of the persecution, they now begin to go all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire and the gospel begins to spread with them. So what was meant for evil, <laughs> God used it for good. So these early Christians are now moving to different areas. And as you read in the book of Acts, one of the primary emphasis of these early apostles and church leaders was to maintain doctrinal unity. I I do agree with that statement, but we're going to see how it's going to be used later. So I, I won't say too much on it now, but just know, like I said, truth can be abused. And so keep that in mind when I when I bring it back up. One of the greatest attempts of the early church was to make sure that wherever Christians were gathering, wherever the gospel was being proclaimed, wherever the faith was being spread, that they were all teaching, saying, and believing the same thing. Doctrinal unity was the primary emphasis of the early church, and we see it in the Acts of the Apostles. And the Judaizers argued that in order to be a Christian, you had to abide by the laws of Moses, most particularly male circumcision. That in order to be a Jew, you had to be circumcised. Remember, that was the sign of the covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis, that all Jewish men were circumcised. And so these Judaizers came to Galatia after Paul had been there and saw these Greeks who said they were Christian, but they were not circumcised. 
and the Judaizers began to argue, you need to be circumcised. Not even, even more further than that, it was, it's kind of like you need to come through the law of Moses before you can even become a Christian. So essentially there was, I mean, I mean, that's why Paul labors so hard in Galatians about we're saved by faith apart from works. Um, if, if, you know, because circumcision had that uh, kind of, you know, the works-based principle to be pleasing to God. That's what Paul said. If you accept circumcision, right, Christ is no effect to you. Um, he's speaking in this terms of if you get it done for that purpose, not just circumcision at all. But it's clear the point he's arguing is uh, work salvation in the context of circumcision. So I would go a little bit further, but I think I know what he means. Paul heard about it and Paul disagreed. Paul believed that. Well, Paul knew about it before like he became a Christian, but, but go ahead. Christianity was not some evolution of Judaism, but that a Greek could become a Christian without uh, conforming to the laws of Moses and being circumcised. So Paul disagreed and it caused an uproar. There was debate. There was doctrinal division. So much so that when Jerusalem which was the headquarters of Christianity led by Peter, hears about what's happening in Galatia, I want you to read Acts chapter 15. Yes, read Acts chapter 15. I don't think you can come to the conclusion that he makes that Peter was the head of the church. I mean, he's kind of agreeing with Rome. Rome here. Um, because if I recall correctly, it was Jude who kind of stood, stood up after all of it and, and kind of said, hey, this is... This is what the church believes, you know, um, it was officially agreed upon, uh, officially worked out. Uh, sorry, not you, James. Sorry. Uh, verse uh, Acts chapter 15, verse uh, 13. Brothers, listen to me. Uh, uh, Simon has related how God first visit, visited the Gentiles to take play to take from a people for his name. And with this word of the prophets agree, just as it's written in quotes from Old Testament. Uh, James continues, uh, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn to God. And so he gives the con James is actually the one who gives the conclusion and kind of the farewell of, and the announcement of the, um, um, you know, the council, not Peter. And so and, and it's not even as if James is the head of the council. He just stands up and it says, look, we all agree. Right. <laughs> you know, and so. We're going to see why this is going to be problematic uh, because we're going to see why this is going to be problematic here in a little bit. But I, I, I have to correct that. And because of some things I know he's going to say later. They call what's called a church council. The leaders of Christianity gather together in Jerusalem, according to what we read in Acts 15, to settle the debate of what was happening in Galatia and around other parts of the Christian kingdom. And if, and if you read Acts 15, um, like I said, go, go read what I just read. Uh, Acts 15 verses one through, um, man, really, really, uh, 35, but you know, Oh man, I need to read this verse because verse 22 says, then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church, uh, to choose men from among them, send them out. So like I would say the church was in agreement with this and then sent forth from the councils to go and spread. I would argue uh, the council agreement, so to speak. Um, 
it wasn't just like a few people that were in agreement. It's like, okay, well, we now we decide on what we what's best for the church. It, the church was in agreement, um, not just a few men. And when I say the church, I mean um, more than just the the. I guess I think because it sounds like he's trying to say like, well, Pope was the head of the uh, Peter was the head of the church, kind of like a popish idea. Um, Roman Catholic. And like I said, it's going to be troubling from some things he says later. But, uh, yeah, read read through this uh, council. Uh, very good. If you know the context of this, um, and like I said, the argument was rested upon scripture. If you read verses uh, 15, 16 and 17, 18. They, they they settle their argument based on scripture. Um, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. So it wasn't just like, hey, man, let's just work this out. Some logical deduction. No, it was it was scripturally based. For, uh, and, and that's always it's and that kind of proves that should always be the case. Um, if we're having disagreement on a theological issue, scripture should be the determiner of um our our our, our uh, debate or what we settle upon what does what does thus saith the lord say because we have to be on one accord we can't have one set of christianity saying circumcision and another one saying no circumcision that has to be resolved why because we have to be on the same page so watch what happens a debate rises the leaders gather together and in Acts chapter 15, they debate the issue, they settle it, and they write an edict, a, a verdict, a letter to go out to all of Christianity saying what they believe about circumcision. Make certain you catch this. Yes, make sure you, because you can see how he's actually making the church seem like, well, we got to debate. We got to debate. We're debating something. Let's come together. We have to agree on something. Um, kind of throws the uh, kind of doesn't really bring scripture into the uh, picture. And so it's like almost as if it doesn't matter what the church agrees on as long as they agree on something, Um, which I would not argue the case because he, like I said, because of his whole primary of unity, which I agree with that part. Uh, it's well, we just need to agree on something and we're going to dictate and determine what is true. Like I said, because he never he never brings up the whole the the scripture argument, the the, the authority of scripture, the uh, the the agreement based upon scripture. That's kind of not in the peripheral of Howard John Wesley's um, evolving the councils. And so that's why I believe he gets into some muddy waters and so to speak. So we'll continue. This is how Christianity is growing as it spreads. Debates and division occur which called the leaders of the church to come together to write their decision that is then sent throughout the Christian kingdom, becoming the doctrine all Christians should abide by. So circumcision becomes debated. The leaders gather together in Jerusalem, make a decision that circumcision is not a prerequisite for Christianity. Based on what though, Howard John Wesley? Because if you read the council, it's clear that they came to this conclusion based on scripture, not just like, and like I said, because he never brings that up. Um, he's not actually dealing with uh, the full argumentation of actual church history, because if you go to a lot of these councils, they're, they're wrestling with what the text says. 
not just say, hey, is Jesus God? Well, I don't, I don't believe so. I, well, I do. Well, it don't matter. We just need to agree on something. That's not how the councils were worked out. <laughs> that's that's not how, generally speaking, the councils were worked out. I'll say that, um, you know, there was there was wrestling with the text, not just, hey, we need to agree on something. Come on, guys, let's let's just get, um, you know, unanimous agreement on something. It don't matter. And they will dictate that as doctrine going forth. That's not how the councils happen. Um, I'm going to provide some resources for uh, for you all uh, once we get into some issues further um, that will get into some of these issues because, um, yeah, that's that's not the case. And then sends that out to all the Christian kingdom. And that becomes one accord. That becomes what every Christian church has to abide by. They have to abide by the ruling of the leaders of the church that have gathered together under Peter. Do you see where this is going? Yes, I see where it's going. One, Peter was not the head of that council. Two, uh, the the council does not determine uh, what is true. It only works it out. It, it, it It's like, hey, this is true um, based on the authority of Scripture, not the council. Was Jesus? Because, I mean, there are people who believe those certain things. Like, you know, people go to Council Nicaea where uh, the deity of Christ is essentially uh, argued and debated. But the scriptures bear that out before the Council of Nicaea. And it was true before the Council of Nicaea. And that would be the basis of, I would argue, a Christian um, believing in and, and, and saying, hey, the church should believe this. Not the authority of the council. I know that's a, a popular Roman Catholic thing. But um, and, and, and obviously this would be my same argument to them. But Pastor John Howard, you're not you're not Roman Catholic. But in a lot of this conversation, he actually does sound very, very Roman Catholic. Um, and you're going to see that further. But I'll, I'll let him continue again. Do you see what's evolving? This debate. Leaders gather, make a decision. Here's the ruling. All Christians now have to abide by what the leader said. And like I said, you can see kind of why I why I touched on the unity issue because of how he's using it. He's kind of just like, well, well, we like I said, we got to agree on something. There's a debate going on. You, you guys know we got to agree. Um, let's do a council and let's just agree on something. That's kind of how he presents uh, the councils. Which, like I said, was not the case. So <laughs> I would. I, I don't know how much study he's done in church history, but I mean, based on this and like I said, guys, it's, it's going to get worse from a historical perspective because right now he's abusing history in a bit. We'll see him actually misrepresent history. So let's continue. Beloved, that ultimately becomes an attempt to make certain that all Christian doctrine was universal, that it was the same. And the word universal and the same is the word Catholic. Catholic is an adjective. Catholic literally means universal. It means same. So what is the Catholic church? The same church. The doctrine's universal. That early Christianity believed whether that church. Well, it, it, it refers to the universal church, meaning the universal believer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in one sense you would. 
if Christianity can be defined in any sort of way, you would expect there to be a cohesiveness and a unity based on that. But I'm I'm not sure of how he's I'm not I don't I don't agree with how he's using that almost like, well, almost like, well, we need to come up with <laughs> we need to come up with doctrine that makes us Catholic. That's and, and by the way, Christians should not have a have a problem with this term Catholic because it means universal. It's not the same as Roman Catholic. If you are a Christian, if you are a genuine born again Christian, you are a Catholic. You are part of the Catholic church, meaning universal church. That is not. And, and what he does in this, he assumes Catholic means Roman Catholic church. And you have to be aware of this argument because Roman Catholics will use it. They'll go back into church history and see and point to point uh, points in times where uh, early church fathers would use the term Catholic, Catholicos uh, in the Latin, and would say, see, look, there's the Roman Catholic Church. But they're not, they're not, and think about it for a second. The term Roman Catholic is actually a very contradictory in the terms. Romans is, Roman is a specific uh, point and place where Catholic is universal. So how can you have a specific local, lo localized universal church that determines the doctrine for everyone? which was what Rome was doing. They were abusing these things. They're, they're, they're actually, they were actually the abusers. And so, yeah, you, I just want you guys to be aware of, of that argument because it's out there and just be able to be ready to, to defend it because it's, it's not a, it's not a uh, in-depth one. If you really know uh, the historical meaning of a Catholicos or Catholic. In Greece, whether that church was in Istanbul whether that church was in Rome, whether that church was in France, that it was universal. The doctrine was the same. The term Catholic church first was used by Ignatius, a bishop, in 110 AD. So think about this. 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, two generations, there's already an attempt to make certain that whatever is believed in whatever church, if you are Christian, you believe the same thing as a Christian somewhere else around the globe. And that is what we call Catholic. The Catholic church has its foundation in making certain that we all believed the same thing. Are you and like I said, he is speaking of the Roman Catholic church. Like I said, this is where church history is uh messy and it's uh you have to watch out for the developments of the roman catholic church um because the roman catholic church developed into what it is what we see now and definitely by the time of the reformation it didn't it wasn't always like that but like i said he sees the term catholic and assumes and and kind of pushes this dev pushes roman catholic into it you can tell how he's using the term because uh yeah roman catholics did do a lot of those things in in councils but that is not always one how they were and not and certainly not how all the councils were. So Catholicism. From and, and like I said, he's speaking of Roman Catholicism. About 35 AD, when Christ ascends to heaven until today, doctrinal division is not and was not allowed in the Catholic Church. Wherever there was a debate, 
the church gathered together its leaders. Think bishops, popes gathered together. They like I said, uh, <laughs> this this is how you know he's speaking of a uh, Roman Catholic. Because what does he mean by bishop? If he just means elder, okay, cool. That's definitely a Protestant use of the term. But pope? There was no pope in 30, 35 AD. I know I know that uh, Roman Catholics will tell you that, but historically speaking, that's absurd to come to that conclusion. No one thought that they were the head of the church and determined what doctrine was and infallible, uh, you know, infallibility of the pope. You, you don't see those things in history. If you, if you actually care about history, um, like I said, I'll provide some sources here in a second if you guys want to dive deep into those issues that will bear some of these things out. Debated. But but let me say this. He's not aware of them, it seems. Or he's not bringing them up. He's kind of bringing up the... I mean, I don't know if he just learned this from a, a Roman Catholic uh, church history class he went to and just assumed this was the case without examining the other side. But he brings none of this up, which is like, it's, like I said, it's sloppy history when it comes to church they write their formal edict or verdict send it out to all the christianity and that is now what all of christianity believes if you are catholic so from 35 a.d up until about 1054 we'll talk about that in a moment there was only one church the catholic church it may have existed in different cities but every catholic church had to believe teach preach the same thing. And whenever there was an issue debated, the leaders would gather together in a church council. They would debate, they would pray, they would make a ruling, and that was the end of it. In but there were differences. Like I said, I, I, I like, and, and what I mean differences, I don't mean like heretical differences, but like practical differences in between different, different churches. I mean, so I, I I don't know I don't know where he's getting this information from because it's 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 not true it's just not true. <laughs> Catholic Church, if there was any variance about what was the orthodox and accepted teaching of the church, so if a certain group of Catholics start to believe something different than what the Universal Catholic Church believed, that doctrine was called a heresy. Heresy is simply believing something different than what the Catholic Church accepted. So uh, I, like, like I said, you can clearly he's uh, talking about the Roman Catholic Church, but um, heresy is it, it, it contradicts what the what the scriptures not because the church isn't the uh, the uh, the standard for what correct teaching is. Now, they guard it, you know, absolutely. Uh, they proclaim truth absolutely but they don't determine truth you, you see what i'm saying they, they're not the determiners of scripture god's word god himself is the determiner of what is true not not the church and so like i said the, the historical mismatch is you, and, and like i said there were i mean the early church fathers many of the early church fathers uh you know even going going beyond that period would be like, what are you talking about? We're, we're not the determiners of of uh, orthodoxy. We don't determine orthodoxy. We don't just come up with a belief and, you know, defend it and you go against it and that's heresy. I mean, you have this in scripture, the word heresy. And so, so yeah, I, very confusing. If you know anything about church history, just listening to this. The Catholic Church said 
that priests have to remain celibate and another group began to say, well, maybe that's not right. That was called heresy. And if you were deemed heretical by the church, you could be excommunicated. Like I said, Roman Catholic Church. Um, but yes, in, in the sense of uh, scripturally speaking, yeah, that's that is true. Like if you accept a historical I mean, sorry, if you uh, if you accept, proclaim, teach, believe heresy, yes, that would be grounds of church discipline, excommunication. I, I would be curious to know to 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 if he actually believes excommunication, uh, which is taught in Matthew 19. Does does he uh, practice that as a church, as him being the uh, head pastor of an Alf Alfred Street Baptist Church? I, I, I would be curious. I, I don't know is what I'm saying, but I would be curious. Because he kind of talks of it like it's a eel yucky, sicky thing, you know. What does excommunicated mean? You're no longer Catholic. You're no longer Christian. You can't receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, it was so damaging and dangerous to be a heretic. You could literally be killed for that. You could be beheaded. Or you could even be denied entrance to heaven. The church will tell you because of what you believe, you're not going to heaven. I, I just want you to see. Like I said, this is the, I mean, because like I said, he assumes a, a Roman Catholic church uh, from 33 AD, assumes the Roman Catholic church has always been like that since uh, 33 AD, uh, assumes all the practice have been the same, and then argues from that position I mean, a lot of Roman Catholics argue like that as well. So you have to be careful. Like I said, the Roman Catholic Church developed into what it is today. And and definitely what it was to by the, by the Council of Trent in, in the 1500s. And so you, you have to be careful with history because it's messy. Um, it's these developments that took place weren't. I mean, because he makes it seem like like the church is Roman Catholic Church has always been like this. It's yeah, this. I mean, but but it wasn't. I mean, you read the church historical book. I mean, you, I mean, many Catholics would even argue this. The ones who know what they're talking about, at least. In, in these early ages of Christianity, how much power the church held. But Roman. the first split within the church, the first time Catholicism has a difference as in 1054, called the Great Schism. What is he talking about? Like the first split, the first time they had like a, a major council? <laughs> what is he talking about? For one, he, he brought up the Jerusalem Council in Acts. So there's one. Um... Let me name some. You have the before 1054 of the Great Schism. Uh, you have the Senate of Carthage. You have Council of Antioch. Uh, or or the Senate of Antioch. You have obviously the Council of Nicaea, which many people know. Um, I mean, there's so many councils that happened and took place. Council of Council of Carthage. And you have many of those councils. Um I mean, there's so many councils where I'm like, what? The first time they split? What? The first time they had some kind of major disagreement? 
I mean, so just to make people aware, the Great Schism is where you actually had three popes. And this is kind of what kind of gets into the uh, Orthodox Church and things like that, where, I mean, and every pope condemned each other as a heretic, which, oddly enough, which kind of gets into like, man, which which pope was the infallible pope? I mean, I, I think this is actually a um, great proof and great argument against uh, the Roman Catholic Church for uh, how a pope doesn't solve the things that they claim should be solved. Um, and so because they always go to like, well, scripture provides division. Well, you guys had three popes at one time. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, but. I mean, like I said, the, the, just this, let, let me provide some resources because I won't be able to deal in um, as much with a lot of the errors he'll make. I'll just have to kind of correct them very shortly, but and then provide resources. My go to church history book, my book on church history, man, I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I will recommend I'll just get one of the volumes. There's four volumes. But I absolutely recommend, hold on, <laughs> this book right here, uh, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. This is the first volume, The Age of the Early Church Fathers by Nick Needham. Um, like I said, there's four volumes to that. If you see right here, I have all, all the other volumes as well. Man, you will be, hold on a second. You will be enriched. If you get that volume, digest it and understand what's going on. Another another one I would recommend is this book right here. It is the story of Christianity is by Justo Gonzalez. Another good work on uh, church history. I, like I said, I, I definitely prefer uh, Nick Needham's work on this. But man, if you read those, I mean, I mean, if you read Justo Gonzalez, you will be sufficient to address a lot of the historical errors. He's even presenting as this because like, I mean, I don't know how he comes to this conclusion actually reading church history was like, man, I mean, he has his, he has a doctorate. Like what was your church history class? Like, I mean, did you take one? I mean, was it like a, just a, a Jan term <laughs> it was like two weeks, three weeks. I don't know how those, those real quick classes, like where you don't really get in depth church history. Like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, be, be curious to find out. Please, I, I hope you're enjoying the walk down history lane. This is important. If you want to understand where we are today, understand what happened in 1054. In 1054, Christianity experienced what was called the Great Schism. And it was the split between Western, which we now identify as Roman Catholic, and Eastern, or what was then called Byzantine, which was the Greek and the Russian Orthodox. So if you've ever looked at Catholicism, there really are two major branches of Catholicism, Western and Eastern. What was another issue? Another issue was about papal infallibility. Now, I've taught on this before, but let me give you a cliff note version. Oh, boy. If you follow what Jesus... But even, even this, notice, I mean, in about... Five, ten minutes, he's gone from 50 A.D., you know, time around Acts, um, to 1054 A.D. Like, a thousand-year sweep of history in, like, five minutes. So that's the actual danger of kind of just being generic through these things of, of church history. Man, uh, I know there are some—if there's if you guys like, like uh, listening to lectures— 
uh, Master Seminary actually has a great and it's it is free lecture. And I think it's about 50 lectures on church history. Um, and I've listened to it about two or three times uh, because it was that good and so in depth, so enriched. Uh, Master Seminary, if you type in like Master Seminary Church History, um, I forget the uh, guy's name. I think his first name is Nathan. Um, so type that in and, and you'll have a and it's a playlist of free classes to listen to from seminary. So guess what? You can get literally, <laughs> you know, take a seminary class from home for free and be well educated uh, to deal with a lot of historical issues um, in church. And so. I've given you guys a lot of resources, a lot of homework to do if you want to be in depth in church history. It says the founding of the church in Matthew 16, and he says to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That was the foundation in the Catholic Church for what was called Petrine succession. Petrine succession, succession of Peter. Petrine believes that the leader of the church is yeah and if you guys want to know more about that um because roman catholics have abused history on this issue because if you look later in scripture all the the, the apostles were actually giving it like all of them and so um that's the that's the kind of uh funny part about it so like i said i'm not going to address this too in-depthly but like i said um if you want some sources on that, there's many debates on this issue here of uh, apostolic secession and how um, it doesn't mean what they claim it means. Um, because their their argument is that, um, you know, kind of apostle after apostle falls, falls in line and, you know, we can f trace the authority. You know, that's how we know the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, that, that things of like tradition come up and um, it. it it's a lot to get into right now, but there's there's resources out there. I would encourage you to watch like some debates with James White. He's debated this issue uh, or definitely give lectures on this issue. So check him out. Many, many other good resources as well. Spiritual descendant of Peter, who also holds the same authority that Jesus gave Peter. Right. So whoever the leader of the Catholic Church is, the pope is a spiritual descendant of Peter and has the same authority so that whatever the Pope says is also authoritative in heaven because Jesus told Peter, whatever you bind, whatever you make authoritative on earth will also be bound in heaven. So long story short, the Pope is infallible. Yeah, that that the is the leader. Sorry, that is what Roman Catholics uh, would argue. But like I said, he's only presenting church history from one side and and because he's presenting a one-sided Roman Catholic view of history, <laughs> it, it's abused. And so I would, I would have to question, why are you presenting the Roman Catholic church side as if it is true? Now, if you were doing a, a, a presentation on Roman Catholics, I would understand, but you're, you're, you're saying this, is, this is church history. So I, it seems to think, I seem to think you believe, agree with this. You know, um, so like I said, man, just just very confused so, because this is not a historical perspective. This this is what Roman Catholics present. But I mean, they're willing to interpret history <laughs> to fit their claims. The Catholic Church is a direct descendant of Peter.
who cannot make a mistake. He's infallible. But even then, um, like I said, he's abused church history or misrepresented churches. He's actually abused Roman Catholic doctrine because they wouldn't say that a pope can't make a mistake. What they would say when he's speaking ex cathedra, when he's speaking in, when he is speaking infallibly, he can't make a mistake, which I, I think is kind of redundant and kind of silly. Uh, and, and many Roman Catholics will tell you that the pope has some would say he, he never has spoken in this manner. Some would say it's been very few times. Uh, there's actually disagreement in the Roman Catholic Church about this, but I think it's very sloppy to say uh, that a pope can't make a mistake. Rome, Rome would not say that. They would say when he is speaking ex cathedra, when he's speaking infallibly, when he's speaking about do uh, dogma, uh, not just doctrine, but dogma, they make a difference between those two. Uh, so you have to understand their position. I'm not telling you you should agree with it, but this this is what the Roman Catholic Church would say. They would not say the Pope can't make mistakes. I mean, it's when he's speaking infallibly. That's the issue. Like, like I said, I, I, I disagree with their um, distinctions and, and arguments of that because I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, would, I would argue that no man speaks infallibly um, on his based on being a pope or something. I, I, deny, I deny papal infallibility. Absolutely. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible. That's why they have to lean and draw so much from tra tradition. But I think it's I think it is important to get one's view right because you you um you really toss yourself up to easy refutation and then now you're just like well i guess i don't know what i'm talking about and then a lot of people those adopt the view because they're like yeah i thought it was this and and then they convert you know and so i get others people views right but yeah there was a debate about original sin when you are born are you an inheritor of the sin of adam or is sin something that comes upon you once you've enacted it? Why is that controversial? Because it's at play with the death of infants. If an infant dies before they've committed a sin in their own understanding, their own flesh, are they hell bound or heaven bound? If they've inherited the atom of sin, they're already on their way to hell. But if sin is just a universal state that you then act upon, and once you commit sin, you become a sinner, then when an infant dies, they're not on their way to hell. I think you can kind of see where he's coming from, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll let him continue because I, I have some more. Some more uh, can I push it to do? Hold on. <laughs> right? The Roman Catholics said, no, children aren't really sinners, which is why children can be baptized as infants this that's actually false roman catholics affirmed original sin and that's why they believed it was necessary for infants to be baptized to remove original sin i.e you know baptismal regeneration what is he talking about roman catholics absolutely believe <laughs> original sin like I said, I, I would be in agreement in some sense with them on this. I think they're right on this. You don't become a sinner when you sin. You, you've already inherited the sin of matter. Romans 5, uh, uh, numerous texts that speak of that. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but they didn't, they, they were not, they actually condemned the Pelagius view, which is what he's bringing up, that men are born not sinners. What is he talking about? 
I mean, that was why they believed in, in baptism. It removes original sin. Go read anything on baptism from a Catholic perspective. That will come up. Like I said, like he's not even he's not representing the Roman Catholic Church. Right. So how can we expect him to actually deal with church history? To make certain that they are saved. On the eastern side, you are born inherently a sinner. And if you die before you're baptized, even as a sinner, you're on your way to hell. Right. It's a, it, 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 it's an issue that's debated using different language then that we use now, but it's still one that we probably could have a healthy Christian conversation about. What happens to a baby who dies? Are they a sinner? Are they already saved by grace? Yeah, yeah, they're a sinner. We're all born sinners. Hence, why we all need Jesus. There's no one at any time of their life could say, I don't need Jesus. No one. Why? Because everyone's sin deserving of God's wrath. Guess what? Even babies. You were a baby once. <laughs> Did you not need Jesus at one time? I think that is the logical conclusion of uh, sinless perfection or sorry, uh, people saying that we aren't born sinful. Why would you need the cross? Why would non sinners need the cross? Something to think about. And I get it. It's, it's emotional because of babies. I get it. But my position is whatever God does is right. Who, who's going to argue with God? <laughs> who's going to say, no, God's wrong for sending babies to hell? My, my, my position is I do not know just for. But whatever God does, he's right. He sends all babies to heaven. Who's he will be just. Can he impart faith to the child? Sure. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not arguing now. But can he punish? The infant in hell? Sure. So my position, personally, like I said, you guys may disagree. Hey, that's fine. We can have healthy debate about that. But I think what we can't have healthy debate about is, are they born sinful? Because scripture clearly teaches that. Where they go when they die? Hey, if you want to debate that, hey, go, go be it. But clearly they're born sinful. Romans 5. Is there a special clause in God's kingdom for them? That was something that was controversial and divisive in the body of Christ back then. Two others. There's an issue about purgatory. Now, if you're Baptist or Protestant, you know that we don't even believe in purgatory. Um, we can teach more about it a little bit later. As a matter of fact, it's going to come up when we get into the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but purgatory was seen as a place where the dead would go who were not fully saved. Maybe that uncle that lived on the fence, you know, did his thing, went to church every now and then. But, I mean, not not just that. Even even people who were righteous. From, from what I understand, many Catholics will say majority of people are going to purgatory. And so not I mean, and, and that's that is <laughs> I'm reading a book um, and it's kind of getting it's on eschatology. But right now it's he's uh, talking about the intermediate state and he's quoting from uh, Roman Catholic sources uh, about the view of purgatory. Um, Man, it's like I said, it's not just that guy you're bringing up. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he'll he'll have the more um, of those. Uh, what's the language of 
purging fire to go through. But yeah, majority of people, unless you're like a a saint, what they call a saint is one who has excess righteousness. You will have to go to purgatory. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, but, but you have to represent that right, too. Purgatory was like a holding zone for the dead. Then the final issue was about what, what hell really was. Um, and that issue is a little too complicated to get into now. But just know that these are the issues that led to the first doctrinal division. Early church, Catholic, no division. 1054. That's not true. It's like no division until 1054. That is false. That is that is completely false. That's completely false. Like I said, just do your own research if you want to. There was many debates, many things that divided people. Um, I mean, like I said, some heretical views and some were it's like, OK, that's not even that big of a deal, but it was a major deal to them. But. It wasn't things, man, things are going well. We're just walking down the road of Catholicism. And, whoa, hold on, 1054, we got three popes. Whoa. No, that's, the church has always dealt with controversy and division. So, it's nothing new for the church. Uh, I would argue that division makes people uh, think about things more in-depthly. Division is good in one sense. Because, uh, like I said, it, it helps people to think more about things that they wouldn't have thought about. Um, just think about it in your life, things that uh, have been controversial for you that if it wouldn't happen, you probably wouldn't have done much study on, um, reading on, um, uh, you know, um, just examining these things if you wouldn't have went through it. And so just think about it from that perspective, that division in some in one sense, it's good for you individually um, striving and wrestling through these issues. I know for me, um, I kind of I come out of the word of faith, uh, Pentecostal, non-denominational <laughs> denominations. Um, and when I was starting to question some of these things, I started doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of a lot of listening to others to see like, man, what I really believe. I was doing a lot, a lot of studying on this issue. Then if I wouldn't have, I don't know if I would be as passionate and as strong about you know, uh, knowing some of their proof texts, knowing uh, some of their arguments. And I do have an episode on uh, prosperity gospel. If you would uh, like to listen, it was actually the first episode of the All Things Theology podcast. Like I said, definitely make sure right now, if you like this video and <laughs> subscribe and subscribe to the podcast, which is in the description below. But it caused me. And like I said, I know it's the same for many of you. I mean, I've, I've heard stories about many of you, many of you guys, many people I know at church. Man, if I wouldn't have gone through that, I I wouldn't know as much as I do know about it. You know, you had a friend who brings up some controversy with you. And so in one sense, divisions are good. I, I'm, I'm just talking just to, <laughs> just mainly to explain to you guys, uh, which I know many of you guys do know uh, what I'm speaking is very true. First split. What kind of bread for communion? Should priests be celibate? Who is the real ruler of the church? Does the Holy Spirit come only after you've confessed Jesus? Is is he arguing that happened at the at 1054? What is your state when you're born? Is sin just around the world or are you an actual sinner? And what was purgatory and what was hell? Those were the first 
doctrinal issues that were debated in the church. He doesn't even bring up uh, the Council of Nicaea about uh, the deity of Christ. Like I said, this this is very so simplistic, so I wouldn't even want to call it elementary because that assumes that it's even giving you a foundation to deal with higher stuff. But it's so broad brush that it's not actually dealing with history. Um, yeah, so I, I, I and he's supposed to be dealing with the Reformation uh, next. And so, boy, you can only imagine uh, how that's going to go. Um, but like I said, man, I, I hope you guys enjoy the resources that I gave. Uh, I actually have more church history, uh, subjects, um, dealing, like if you want to know, Hey, matter of fact, cause I see this book right now. Let me actually recommend this book. Hold on a second. This book right here is very good. Actually dealing with some of the church splits, dealing with some of the doctrinal issues that was debated. Uh, it's called heresies by Harold OJ Brown heresy and orthodoxy in the history of the church and man it, it's a long read i will tell you that it's a long and if you don't if you're not interested in some of these things <laughs> like i am if you're not you don't nerd out on some of this stuff then yet th this might be boring to you but this book is almost it's about 450 pages long i mean he goes in very in depth of all the disputes I mean, I think, yeah, past the Reformation for sure. Um, I mean, I see a date right here in 1919. And so he goes hit up into history, dealing with a lot of the debates, things that the church wrestled with when it comes to uh, orthodoxy and heresy and how actually scripture was the foundation for these things. Hold on. I like to have my books up. Got to have those books in order. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, guys, get some of those resources uh, that, that I, I, I pointed to in this uh, podcast and this video here. Um, it'll definitely be ed educational. I mean, you'll learn so much. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely been so helpful for me to uh, to wrestle with these things and, and, and figure out what I believe on these issues. Um, man, just enriching yourself in history, understanding some of the things that happened before you, I mean, because we are standing on the shoulders of giants and you have to recognize that. Um, and, and, and it's a good way to examine your own tradition, you know. Um, so a lot could be said about that in self, itself. Um, like I said, there's many resources uh, I provided in this podcast here to go and check out. Like I said, guys, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I, this this podcast could have been more in depth if I'd have spent time on every area he made. Um, but like I said, I hope that in providing the resources, it'll actually give you a foundation to to go study these things yourself and 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 to look look in depth. Like I said, it, it's a good time to study church history um, when many people are ignorant ignorant about history itself. Um, it's it's important to know the history of of those believers who came before you. So. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. If you're not subscribed to the channel, subscribe. If you are, make sure to like this video. If you have comments, you have questions, leave it in the comment section. Let's chop it up, man. Till the next time, yo, grace and peace.